0: Hello listeners and welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. Today we're having a bit of a time warp. It must at least be 11 years ago that I was sitting in the staff club talking to a friend of mine who's a professor of engineering and Derek said, "Hey, I've written an article all about how we could have a hydrogen-based economy. Would you like to read it for me and just, you know, see what you think of reading something about. It doesn't make sense, does it hold together? How does it sound to a non-technical person?" I'm like, sure. So Derek sent it to me next morning, get up, read it, slapped myself in the forehead and said, we must all be stupid. (laughs) Derek's worked out that we can all move forward in this amazing way and have a renewable source of fuel that seems pretty safe, but I've got to quiz him on the safety aspect. And here we are, at least 11 years later, and Twiggy Forrest has just come out and told Australia that he's going to run all his mine trucks and mine trains on hydrogen within a couple of years. So we thought, right, it's time to get Derek back, dust off this paper, get him to fill in what's changed in 11 years and explain to us maybe why the world is finally ready for hydrogen but also where hydrogen is going to fit in a broader package of new technologies. I'm joined today by David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, other than the fact that my big pink coffee is now empty because I drank it while we were recording Strategic Con, so I may go through withdrawal halfway through this episode.
1: <laughs> well, we're talking about some really important things. We're also joined with Professor Derek Abbott. Thank you for joining us, Derek. Pleasure to be here.
0: Oh, he's got the cool radio voice. Yeah. This is good. Yeah, it was great. It's excellent <laughs> when everyone's got the cool radio voice. We take on an extra level of credibility. Mm.
1: I didn't
2: realise this fact. Um, It sounds weird to me when I listen to it. No, no,
0: no. I think my voice is terrible. So you're fine. As long as you only think your voice is terrible, everything's actually groovy. Oh, fine. (laughs) Oh, no, now he's going to go for talking to the whales and very deep and serious. Okay, Derek, in your best deep serious, 11 years ago when you wrote the hydrogen paper, what motivated you then to go, someone needs to think this through and summarise it in a single document?
2: Well, I was looking at renewables in general and um, seeing how renewables all fit together and how we as an ecosystem can uh, take on renewables in the future more and more and how it would all fit together and function. And it seemed to me uh, to make that dream of going 100% renewable in the future that you would need some other form of fuel to help drive that and it seemed to me out of all the options I looked at that hydrogen was the way to go and there are a number of reasons for that Um, uh, the key reason is that what we call the hydrogen cycle is perfectly renewable let me give you an example if we uh, say electrolyze water with electricity we could get that electricity say from solar power Create hydrogen, oxygen. We then utilise or burn that hydrogen; it turns back into water. So it's a complete, uh, closed cycle, in a sense. So uh, wherever we ship hydrogen around in the world and utilise it, it will go back to water, and so the uh, so it's a complete closed cycle for the for the ecosystem. Uh, and when I looked at other ways of doing it it wasn't quite as clear as hydrogen so it seemed to me that hydrogen was was the way to go
0: the other thing i remember being really important was that so many steps of the process we could use things we already had so i seem to remember you writing about the fact that we could use solar power and Stirling engines together to produce the hydrogen so it was stuff we already knew how to do we could transport the hydrogen in vehicles that already exist we could retrofit service stations to have one hydrogen pump safely. So this was a thing where instead of having to put electric car chargers everywhere or fundamentally alter the world, we could retrofit, you know, the infrastructure we already have. Is was that the case then, and is it definitely the case now? Do we have that advantage? Uh,
2: yes, I believe uh, you can. And it's already happening. Uh, You can see uh, hydrogen filling stations. Uh, Probably the place where there's the most of these in the world is California right now. Uh, But there are hydrogen filling stations all over Europe now, in Asia as well, not so many. And uh, we have a paucity of them here in Australia, unfortunately. Do we have any? I think we've got one in WA and that's about it. (laughs) Uh, So we
0: we, we need to lift our game, I believe. Mm. So, when I started telling people about your paper, the first freak out everyone had seemed to be a historical one of, wasn't the Hindenburg or whatever it was called, powered by, is it the Hindenburg the airship that blew up? Correct, yes. Was powered by hydrogen and everyone goes, ah, hydrogen. Dudes, that was a big envelope full of explosive gas. Derek, tell us we have better technology than a big explosive envelope. Yes, well, there's a myth,
2: myth there to bust. First of all, it actually didn't explode. It actually just
0: burnt, uh, and then fell it, out the sky. So you first it, you burn, <laughs> then you go splat. It's a pretty bad combo. Well, uh, what 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 actually happened is, uh, you know,
2: the technology of the day, the um, the the sheath of the balloon uh, had several layers that rubbed together, and uh so friction and a spark. Yes. Uh, and it caught a light. Uh, it didn't actually explode. The just the top surface of the Hindenburg just uh, went up in flames, and and it Dropped and, like a stone. and it didn't drop like a stone. It oh, kind boy, of actually it. floated down, um, and quite a lot of people actually just walked off the Hindenburg to safety uh, at the end because um, it didn't go splat. Uh, so there were survivors. The people that actually didn't survive uh, were the people that got freaked out and
0: jumped out. So it was actually if you freaked out, you died? Yes. Wow, so So we really need to go. This footage might have been the first (laughs) terrifying footage that people ever saw of a slow motion air disaster. But if they'd managed to calm down and go, hang on, it landed and a proportion... Was it sort of at least half? Do you remember how many people walked? Um, I forgot the numbers, but uh, I think half to two-thirds uh, survived, yes. Okay, so really this should not
2: have ended an era. That's right. And in fact, uh, every time there's a conventional aircraft crash, um, everybody dies. Yeah. Uh, but not everybody died in the Hindenburg. Uh, yet we have this uh, image of it as making hydrogen unsafe, it's uh, – I hope I, I can bust that myth.
0: Well, so let, let's go kind of vehicle type by vehicle type. If we were talking about filling cars up. Mm. So, you know, someone drives in the servo to fill up their hydrogen car. How does it work and is it safe?
2: Uh, yes, uh, it's safe. And it's all to do with the way the no- nozzle is engineered. It's um, – not like your uh, petrol filling nozzle where you just slide it in the hole. It's actually one that clicks on. And uh, so there are various safety locks that click on and valves that come into place. And so it's it's uh, perfectly safe. And the next thing you might uh, wonder about is uh, what happens if the car tank leaks? <laughs> And there's a fire or something like that. Mm. Um, The uh, University of Florida uh, did an interesting experiment uh, to demonstrate what happens. They got two cars, one with a hydrogen tank, one with a petrol tank. They deliberately pierced both the tanks and set light to them. And guess what happened? Neither of the cars exploded, neither the petrol one nor the hydrogen one. But what happened is uh, the fuel burnt off. In the case of the hydrogen car, because hydrogen is so much lighter than air, uh, the hydrogen went up uh, in a thin flame. Um,
0: Looked like a jet jet uh, on a Bunsen burner sort of thing. Yes. Wow. How did you know that? Oh, I remember in you know, <laughs> chemistry or whatever in oh, okay. high school, the wonderful yeah, yeah. sensation <laughs> of the sound of the gas rushing through and the woomph. That's I think, right. I
2: like that sound. Yes. So, so it was like that with the uh, test they did in Florida. And because it goes up in a thin flame like that. Um, really manageable. The, the, the driver's seat is well away from that and the driver is unharmed. Whereas in the case of the petrol car, this is a complete different story. Petrol is now heavier than air. It uh, goes all spills all mm-hmm. underneath the car, the whole car goes up in flames mm. and uh, in fact, in a little over 60 seconds if you were sitting in the driver's seat you would you'd be fried. So in that sense, um, petrol is more dangerous than hydrogen. Now, let me i'm not trying to say that hydrogen isn't dangerous of course it is and so is petrol all all forms of fuel are mm. dangerous it's um it's just a different ball game with how we handle them it's about the management ha- structure how we do the management structure yeah. and uh and and putting all the safety uh, things into place and if we put sa- sensible safety measures into place um um it can be as safe as uh, petrol, and and we have uh, precedents for it. Um, for example, the space shuttle uh, was hydrogen fueled, and that was a perfectly safe
0: uh, uh,
2: space mission. All but once, and that was different (laughs) issues.
0: That was tiles. Yes. So, again, listeners, the space shuttle did go bang, but it wasn't related to fuel. It was related to tiles failing when ripping through air and causing huge friction. Again, a bit like the Hindenburg, we're down to friction being the problem. Exactly. Yeah.
2: And, um, you know, and Americans, uh, because of the way they think, um, thought, ooh, what if I'm in my hydrogen car and somebody shoots at me? Like in the movies, nothing will happen other than in the movies. Will it go bang? Uh, So, Of course, we wouldn't worry about such a problem in Australia, but um, in America they had to do the experiment. So in the Lawrence Livermore labs in the States, they uh, got a a hydrogen uh, tank uh, with compressed hydrogen in it and uh, shot it with uh, armour-piercing bullets,
0: and guess what? It didn't explode. It just fizzed out because we released the pressure. It just fizzed out. So here's a question for all our listeners, and I sort of vaguely remember the answer. But the point is, if we move to hydrogen, it's not just a case to that every vehicle needs to be new and different. We can actually retrofit internal combustion engines wow. to make use of hydrogen, can't we?
2: Now, ah, uh, this or has is this the change since you wrote This is the line I took when I wrote the paper all those years yeah. ago, and my reasoning and it's true, you could retrofit existing combustion engines with hydrogen, and my line of thinking at the time why I was sold on that way of doing it is that in those days, fuel cells were not that good yeah. <laughs> Be very inefficient and very dear. And it seemed to me that if you retrofit and use our infra- existing infrastructure, uh, you'd keep all the car manufacturers happy
0: and employ lots of people helping to do the the retrofitting. Yes. So we
2: suddenly solve it, structural unemployment. It seemed
0: to be a win
2: win situation <laughs> yeah. at the mm-hmm. time. Um, however, my view has now changed, and the great thing of being a great thing of about being a university professor and not a politician... You can change your mind with evidence. ...is I'm allowed to change my mind (laughs) when I see further evidence. You're a good Bayesian. Uh, You got extra evidence, you had to revise your hypothesis. Exactly. This is what scientists do. Whereas, unfortunately, when politicians change their mind, they're accused of being flip-floppers or inconsistent. Mm. Um, We somehow don't allow them that pleasure. Um, But... um, But yes, uh, so I've changed my mind on it. And the reason is that fuel cells have been improving all these years. They've been getting better and better. And uh, there are lots of fuel cell hydrogen driven uh, vehicles around the world today. Mm. Uh, Everything from, you know, forklift trucks uh, in Amazon headquarters, to uh, various uh, hydrogen buses in select cities of America, in Berlin, in um, various uh, European cities. Uh, even in Australia, do you be- can you believe this? Uh, the University of Queensland uh, looked uh, a number of years ago, looked at its $24 million a year electricity bill. And the then vice chancellor of that university said, hey, why don't we just all go solar and uh, kill the electricity bill? So they did, and they installed uh, massive amounts of solar panels on the UQ campus, and they've gone completely solar. On top of that, they said, okay, let's now use that solar to generate hydrogen on campus. And I don't know if you've ever been to the UQ campus, but it's a much Largest. Oh, it's a
0: big campus s- with beautiful green spaces. Spread it's out, lovely.
2: spread out yeah. campus compared to Adelaide University, and so they actually need uh, little microbuses going around. To campus buses uh, riding around to drop people off to various places, and so they said, well, "Why not run these buses off hydrogen?" And wow. so. That's what they they're doing. With so the, they made
0: it on campus with their, and their own, used home, it on campus with their
2: own homemade hydrogen, and that's wonderful.
0: And why and, did we have to wait till now of having Derek on the program to know that for something so bloody important <laughs> to be made evident?
1: Yeah.
0: Well, uh, you know the uh, the wheels of
2: politics can move slowly and buses and and move slowly but i think there is a general a, a growing a growing realization that hydrogen is the way to go and one of the things that's really propelled that and has made the penny drop in the minds of lots of australian politicians is that uh, recently uh, japan announced that it wants to go totally hydrogen by the year 2030 which
0: means we will suddenly buy vehicles and everything very cheap and we could export to them so it's a win win
2: Yes, or we could be the uh, exporter of the hydrogen to... Because uh, yeah. um, was it
0: here at Crystal Brook or somewhere we're getting our first major plant? Um, I have to get back to you on that. Yeah, <laughs> th- it was somewhere here in South Australia where we were meant to be getting a fairly major hydrogen yes. plant. Right.
2: Yes, uh, there are major hydrogen initiatives here in South Australia, so our existing government's very keen on, very keen on it. We have um, hydrogen initiatives being researched in the Tonsley campus, Mm, That are government driven, and so there's some exciting things happening around Australia. So we need to see more of it. And given our huge
0: land mass in Australia, Mm. well, that was part of your original argument. So much sunshine all the time to use solar to make hydrogen. So what does a hydrogen plant look like?
2: Well, there are various ways uh, to make hydrogen, and I see the key way of doing it from solar power is to simply electrolyse it, yep. so to use electrolysers. So uh, these are basically electrodes that you stick into water, um, uh, pass electricity through it, and produce hydrogen. And so what that will actually look like uh, uh, in, a, in a commercial setting is a huge big box. Uh, so basically. just lots of big boxes sitting lots beside each other. Yes, okay. uh, r- driven off solar power. And they don't necessarily need to be co-located with... Uh, so you can have a little one it. just
0: for UQ, or you can have a whole farm of them. It's, it's yes. really up to what you want to do. So this thing can be done at anything from a micro to a macro scale. Correct. Yes. So this is wonderful in that you could go, we'll have five of these processor units or we'll have 100, depending on what we need to do at a given place.
2: That's right. It's completely wow. scalable. And the storage, scalable? Yes. Now uh, I will come to that. Uh, I was going to come to that later, but I may as well Sorry, talk we about that now. Sorry, we get too excited now. and
0: get out of, all out of track.
2: I'll, I will. I will talk about that now. So one of the things about hydrogen, if you want to store it, uh, the the great thing about hydrogen is that it's got a, a lot of energy content per unit mass, mm-hmm. and so uh, it's a great fuel but its energy content per unit volume, however, is not very good. It's uh, it's a very uh, oh. uh, rarefied gas. And so uh, to store it, you want to compress the gas. I see. And you might have to, say, store it at 500 psi, pounds per square inch. So it's a fairly serious oh, so pressure. Yeah. So you need some serious pressures, which takes energy. Yeah. And you need uh, serious uh, canisters to put that in uh, that have
0: got a nice big thick wall. So again, thickness. they're scalable. You could have as many of those inner spaces space as you potentially needed.
2: Yes. However, because you're doing 500 PSI and you've got some pretty heavy-duty uh, canisters, it's something uh, we would like to not have to do. Mm-hmm. It's... Uh, it puts a strain on the economics of it. Uh, it's doable,
0: but um, so that's the economic difficulty, That's the that's, that's the pinch the, point economically and um, perhaps safety wise. The would, pressure vessels.
2: Well, um, no, because you overcome the safety by making these. Uh, you the, just over engineer the, over-engineer the, them the from day one. Are Thicker and you over engineer okay. them, and that's why they make you they're expensive, right what you would like to do is store them in thinner vessels at much lower pressures. And there is a solution to that. And this is actually being worked on in the chemistry department at Adelaide University right now. And so their idea there is, is why just pump this hydrogen into an empty tank? Why don't we have some kind of porous, spongy material inside the tank?
0: So like filtering uh, water through stone, so to speak, is an analogy.
2: Yes, that you create a very large surface area uh, through a porous material inside the tank. And it turns out that if you do that, you could store hydrogen at 100 psi, say, instead of 500.
0: So suddenly you've got your game changer. So it's a big game You've got game rid of changer. your pinch point. What, so
2: what does the surface area do? Sorry, I'm not... It enables you to store the hydrogen at much lower pressure. Cause right.
0: Because the, the, the medium in there changes how the pressure interacts with things, yeah? Interesting. Correct,
2: yes. And what that then means is that your vessel that's containing the whole thing can be thinner as well.
0: Wow. So suddenly building these things, you can have a lot of them. It costs a lot less. Depending on what that medium is in the vessel too, that's going to make the vessel more stable. Because Correct. it's got yes. structural integrity in relation to the vessel? Correct, yes. Ooh, this is, okay. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff 11 years ago when we were talking about over whiskeys was you know, not even on the horizon yet, was it?
2: So let's talk a little bit more now about the the general economics of hydrogen and why it might actually work out. But before I do that, I want to talk about what's happening in renewable energy globally.
0: hmm like its its position within the broader context the, the of all the things that can fit what's with
2: what's actually happening, and why? Because it's in that context which you need to work out the economics of hydrogen. You you don't work out hydrogen's economics on its own.
0: It's part of a mixed solution it's to a global
2: problem. Exactly. Yeah. You've got to see where it fits in with the mix. So let me just talk about what's happening. So we see a a lot of rhetoric in the media about um, renewables and linking it to climate change, and that's why we need renewables. Uh, I'm going to say something that might surprise people here, um, and I'm going to say you actually don't even need that rhetoric anymore. (laughs) The economics of renewables Mm, is so favourable. We're already there you don't need any of that rhetoric.
0: You can just get on with it because it's
2: economically viable. You can just get on with yeah. it because it's viable. And I say let's let go of the rhetoric because you you don't need that. You can get uh, – by dropping that rhetoric, you can actually get support. Well, Twiggy Forrest, he uh, wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't economically You can get good. support from uh, both, both parties uh, yeah. in every country. Yeah. And it's already happening, like um, – are, we have a conservative government here in South Australia and they are heavily supporting renewables and hydrogen. Texas, which is heavily conservative. Mm.
0: And an oil state to boot. Is mm. an
2: oil state, conservative. You won't believe this about Texas. Texas is one of the regions in the world with the highest penetration of renewables. Wow. So you've got to ask yourself, why are... Trump-loving, fan flag-waving Texans
0: going for it. Yeah, but I will say one (laughs) thing to Texas, that Austin is one of the most amazing cities in the world and is more like Seattle or San Francisco than Texas. Correct. And that's where most of the power is and it's where most of the brains are. So the power and brains of Texas are not reflective of redneck Texas. It's two different worlds. And if it wins in Austin... Well, suddenly you're going to have an F-150 with a fuel cell. It'll just happen. So I've posed this question to uh,
2: uh, my contacts in Texas that are in the power industry, and this is the answer I've got. They they basically said that money talks in Texas, Mm. and um, if you've got uh, an investor that's coming in, uh, sees that uh, you know to set up a wind farm or a solar farm is a good deal for him, he'll do it because um, it's the money that matters. Mm. And so my next question was, okay, this is very well, uh, all very well, but so why is it that uh, the penetration of renewables as a percentage, that is, of what else goes on in California isn't so high as Texas? you would surely expect California to have a higher penetration than Texas. And it turns out the answer I was given is, uh, yes, the political motivation obviously is there in California because that's California waves the renewable flag. However, in Texas, the uh, what's called ERCOT, which is their equivalent of... uh, the electricity operator in the state just so happens to have uh, a lot less red tape than um, than California. So if I'm an invest uh, an investor wearing a big Texan hat with lots of money,
0: you can get stuff and, done, and
2: I'm and I want to make a fast buck, uh, setting up some wind farm. I'll do it in Texas, not in California, yeah. because. I will get all the red tape passed uh, very quickly, whereas I could be waiting, you know, one or two years in California, whereas I want to start seeing my return on money straight away. Well, the
0: classic example of that is solar thermal plants. Like California wanted them, but other states got them because of the environmental implications. When no one knew, other states just said, let's have a go. California said, prove it won't damage the environment. Yeah. And in doing so, they lost the opportunity. Yeah. So that seems a good analogue for the broader thing of yeah. renewables. Yeah. Mm.
2: So the point I want to make about Texas is its high penetration in into Texas is nothing to do with politics. It's all about making a buck. The economics is right. But it's also to do with the administrative efficiencies they have there um, as well. Uh and so I think there's a, a lesson there for Australia. Uh, I think the... Um, well,
0: you know, some part of Texas is... Why, oh you is Texas a sister state to us here? Correct. We're sister yes, states. Yes,
2: exactly. We're sister states. So the lesson here for Australia is uh, I think we are starting to see uh, political uh, motivation uh, for getting into renewables and hydrogen particularly after Japan's announcement. Many politicians are realising that there's a buck to be made there. Mm. And uh, we need to be looking at creating the administrative efficiencies that can make it happen quicker.
0: I take the Texas lesson over the California lesson. And
2: so not have to be waiting for ages to get approvals for, say, a transmission line connected up to a farm, uh, getting... Placing a farm in a certain location, all all the sort of approvals one has to go through, if those can be uh, set up so that it's an efficient deal for investors, we'll see a lot more of it happening.
0: So that Uh, raises an immediate question for me where you just said transmission line. So until now, we've had the thing that solar works during the day, and this is why we've had the move to solar thermal plants, so that we can have energy at night from the heat store during the day. Can hydrogen be used to, you know, generate massive amounts of power? So during the day, could solar panels be used to make and store hydrogen that then runs a power plant at night or... You just need too much hydrogen. It would be too big for the storage, just not economically viable.
2: No, that is absolutely viable. And that is one of the things you would want to do. So the reason I wanted to bring up this point about renewables in general, as I said, is I want to set hydrogen in this context. And another thing I, I need to say about renewables is that another thing that is making it all economically come into play is this concept of e- electrification. Now, when you say electrification to, to people, they immediately think, oh, my Tesla battery or my Tesla car. <laughs> okay, But there's more to it than that. Uh, electrification is a big movement uh, that's happening throughout the world that people don't realise. Uh, well, you will realise if you just think about it, everything is becoming electrified. Yeah, Everything um, we use, just, we, we plug in. Exactly. Think about uh, uh, garden equipment. Yeah. Um, mm. doesn't matter what. Tools. It's got a lithium-ion mm. battery. Power you charge tools. it up, you
0: use it, and then you recharge it. Everything becoming electrified. Normal.
2: Yeah, it's the new yeah. normal. I recently uh, went th- throughout my old uh, petrol-driven leaf blower in my garden oh. and got an electric one. And guess what? I didn't do it to save the planet to be It was more, bloody good value. to be more green. Uh, I I'm I'm I I am going to be honest here. I did it for my own selfish reasons. <laughs> yeah. I just didn't want to breathe in the the the, the fumes the gunk. Or, or the gunk. Yeah. And I'm the only one in my family that's strong enough to pull the ripcord on the <laughs> petrol driven. And you won't <laughs> be able to hand it to small humans when they get bigger and say small humans. So now your, your I can hand money. it to my small humans and my wife and and all they have to do is do a flick of the switch. And they're off. And they're off and they can do it. Uh, so it's completely selfish.
1: <laughs> it doesn't need to be <laughs> but, serviced either. But it's is more that?
2: convenient, yeah, much more convenience. And, and this is the thing about electric cars is the convenience. You look under the bonnet – Guess what? There's no engine there. It's empty. You just got little electric motors by it by the wheels, mm. and you've got a battery, and that's all there is to it. And and uh, it's a huge game changer. Because it, remember, in the beginning of this podcast, I said that in my paper ten years ago, I believe the way to go was retrofit Was yeah. to burn hydrogen in a combustion engine. Now I've now changed my tune on that, and what I believe now is electric cars are a big game changer. And what we're seeing with electric cars is that there's basically a factor of a thousand less moving parts in them Mm. than a combustion car. That's huge. That's a huge game changer. And what does that mean? That means if you can get rid of all those moving parts by going electric, Mm. A, you've got much more reliability long term, And guess what? That's wasted energy because of friction. Yes, that too. Uh, But guess what? Hardly any servicing. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah. it it either works Uh, or it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, you swap out one motor. So to jump into the extension of that, so if we had a hydrogen fuel cell in a car now, it becomes electric. That's my point. The car is not really hydrogen; it's converting the hydrogen into electricity. Correct. So what we're really saying is that you might have a car with some batteries on board to store Mm. some energy so you can run the radio while you're sitting or the air while you're sitting waiting. But the minute you're going to move again, you go back to the hydrogen fuel cell, converting hydrogen to make electricity and then powering the vehicle more like what we would think is a quote-unquote normal electric vehicle. correct.
1: Yes. uh, Like a wonderful thing about the hydrogen combustion engine is that you can still have these legacy cars that people still want to keep alive that they don't have to now put electric engines in. Uh, to keep you know in you've the, you've the non petual age, yeah, and
0: they're all better than what we're doing now.
2: Yeah, oh, that's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Now let me tell you uh, another little wrinkle on this, the the whole thing, and that is that um, a lot of people are uh, in the industry are saying things at the moment like. Uh, hydrogen will be no good for your family car. It's only good for big buses and big trucks. Uh, why? And and so on. Uh, so for long distances, big heavy haul stuff. And the logic is, the reason why they're saying that is that uh, for long haul stuff, um, it starts becoming uneconomical to have lithium batteries Yeah, because you're carting around this. Yeah, the weight of the
0: batteries huge, in the truck is just ridiculous. Yeah, the yeah.
2: weight, weight, weight yeah. of your battery in your truck will be as much
0: as the yeah. load you're so trying to So if you have a B double, one of the trailers is the batteries, one is the load. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Kind of so pointless. it's better
2: to have hydrogen, which is relatively light, and uh, you burn it off as you go. And fill up at any servo, because we've retrofitted it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Pump. yeah. And so the economics of the hydrogen works out really well for, um, for uh, uh, big vehicles. But when they run the figures for uh, smaller vehicles, like your family sedan, uh, there's a crossover point. And at the moment it's looking like, um, you know, Tesla got it right. And it the lithium battery is, is better for smaller vehicles. It mm. works out. The economics works out cheaper and you're carting around a relatively lighter battery. So you get away with it. Mm. However, that's the current thinking, but I'm thinking more long-term, and I'm thinking that might be the case in the short term, but I'm thinking in the longer term, we might start seeing um, hydrogen fuel cells in um, smaller cars as well. Now, uh, let before I get on to explaining why I think that, let, let's talk about the economics of hydrogen as it fits into the context of what i've just been talking about about electrification and renewables so as i've said the economics of renewables the prices have come down and the economics of renewables are driving it now the the climate rhetoric isn't what actually drives it anymore
0: yeah not economic viability given
2: that you we can get, get given that. that you can get texans yeah heavily investing in renewables got nothing to do with the climate obviously <laughs> yeah uh, it's the economics so um that's driving it also electrification is driving these things as well uh and the other thing that, that's happening with electrification is even the grid itself is getting electrified. Old-fashioned mechanical relays and transformers and things, clunky things like that all being replaced with power electronics now. So the grid itself is being electrified. So the whole way we operate, all these things that are happening to the grid uh, itself and to the consumers uh, mm. and the consumer habits... Uh, with all our electric devices we plug in, means that the demand curve on a country's electricity looks a lot different to what it, say, used to be 30 years ago. Mm. And we're seeing a lot more variability on that demand curve. And so we now need forms of electricity that can come on quickly. And that is the real reason why we're not building big coal stations anymore, because... It's nothing to do with climate. It's to do with the economics because a coal station is something it has that, to be running to get it up the speed to get the steam boiling to uh, get the turbine spinning exactly, yeah. and it stays on continuously. Yep, because that's where you're getting past friction. If you were contusion. to hypothetically turn on and off your coal station, <laughs> you wouldn't want to do this. But if you did, you would ba- basically crack your furnace with thermal stresses. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you wouldn't, you couldn't and wouldn't want to do it. Uh, you want things that can come on and off quickly,
0: and this is what
2: hydrogen can
0: do. So uh, to give an example, and tell me if it works, because, again, this way listeners have something to think about while you're explaining. So if we've got a big wind farm, we've got a big solar panel, and we're bleeding off that energy, and that energy is being used to produce hydrogen, that hydrogen is sitting in these low-pressure vessels ready to go back in to make energy the minute the solar and the wind aren't working right. Correct, that becomes yeah. the best way to integrate, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's good. So we, so what Derek's going to explain is basically why what I just said works. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, uh, um, by the way, uh, this thing I said about coal fire stations, they stay on all the time, so they're just not economical on the, today's grid. Because they're not smart. It's like the, the machinery has go, to keep spinning. It can't, it, it can't be varied up and down to yeah. meet our, today's demand curve. And today's command, d- demand curve is a function of the electrification, uh, all that's happening in electrification, and, and is also to do with the fact that we've got more renewables on, and, and they're on because they're so cheap. Uh, so it creates all this variability that we have to meet. And the same reason that coal stations, of uh, uh, no new ones are being built, is the same reason why nuclear power is in fact declining around the world. It's less to do with the rhetoric about nuclear power and being dangerous and Fukushima and all that. Mm. It's more to do with the actual economics of it because nuclear power... is so expensive. Nuclear power, just like a coal station, produces nice constant oh. power output, which is actually not what you want on today's grid. Yeah. You want something that's quickly variable that can fill in
0: fill in for you because what Um, often takes grids out is the fact that suddenly something goes wrong and there's energy that has to be shunted somewhere and it can't be shunted and then you blow a part of the grid whereas if you've got so many small things that you can just go power
2: down Uh, exactly yeah now with a nuclear power station you can um modulate it very slightly but not enough not radically not radically and if you were to radically uh try and ramp up a nuclear power station guess what bang same no no same <laughs> thing same thing with a coal power station you will thermally stress the nuclear vessel so' and, I was right bang and it, well it won't bang it will crack the vessel and you'll get leakage which is what yeah what you don't want yeah. which you don't want that so basically it's a, nucle- a nuclear power life. is expensive anyway and to put it on t- today's modern grid is even a a worse deal because it's not giving you the type of power you want. It's giving you constant power rather than variable power. Today we want variable power. So things like um, dams with hydropower and stuff like that are great today if you've got them. Mm. But where you don't have them, you will need
1: something like hydrogen. um,
0: Connect uh, to to wind or solar or wave energy to make it happen. It happen. So you're telling
1: me that, all the energy that we've been using thus far, if it if it isn't
0: being used, it's wasted completely. Well, because it's dangerous, it has to be directed somewhere.
1: Uh,
2: yes. So uh, it's funny. I was uh, in a conference in Russia, and um, uh, several years ago, and uh, there was a bunch of Russian uh, nuclear engineers and scientists on on the boat. Uh, this was uh, this is a beautiful conference where I was on a boat uh, floating down the Volga. And, with uh, vodka, with uh, lots of oh yeah, um, <laughs> on the Volga with vodka. Uh, yes, I was on this boat with. Um, uh, it was fantastic. And uh, at the banquet on the, we had the whole conference on the boat and on the banquet. Every time I turn my head around to talk to somebody and look back at my glass in my hand it was magically filled somebody kept filling it and i must have had about 20 vodkas on that uh, on that evening <laughs> but uh, i was very i was fine um After, I've, I've later. Got, no i've got a strange body where i can I take uh, enormous amounts of spirits and be and not get drunk but a smallest amount of wine, for example, makes me feel sick. Which wow. is why he's whiskey guy on Fridays.
0: Which yeah. is,
2: I feel sick with wine. So that's why I'm a whiskey drinker.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, anyway, that's uh, a sidetrack. So, yes, so I talked to these Russian uh, nuclear engineers and I asked them about nuclear power in Russia and what some of the problems are. And they said the biggest, the biggest problem with nuclear power is we actually have to dump a lot of the power.
0: Oh. Yeah, we and have to we have to find it. a safe way to do that.
2: Yes. Yeah. Um, we have to curtail it. And so what that's saying is straight off the bat is it's actually getting more and more uneconomical.
0: Yep. Yeah. And you need on and off power. Yeah. So if we talk about hydrogen being useful in so many different ways, can we imagine an era where rather than natural gas going through pipes and arriving in our house to burn? That we would use hydrogen or electrification will really remove even the need for natural gas fairly soon.
2: Okay. Well, or have I bitten off
0: too big a thing? You want to come back and do another episode?
2: (laughs) That's a good question. You know, I don't have a crystal ball uh, about those sorts of things. Um, I we'll we'll have to see how that game plays out. and it depends on the end user, uh, on society, as a society. Do we feel safe and comfortable? Do we not care about our gas anymore and all happy, mm, yeah. all happy to move across to inductive stoves? No. Um, sure. Um, no. <laughs> if we do that, we could just get rid of gas altogether. That's true. Wow. Um, mm. uh, potentially. Uh, but I, I, I think it it's a societal decision there where, where people, want to go with that Um, so it's it's difficult to predict that sort of again that's more of a
0: political decision than a science decision
2: it's also a social decision as well um but yeah so let me let me go on to what i think is happening so so as i explained you know you've got electrification you've got the grid going more and more renewable and we need uh sources of energy that can turn on and off quickly So where does hydrogen actually, how does it economically work out in this scenario? So this is where I've been doing some modelling with my students right now. And what we're looking at is uh, what if we deliberately oversupply renewables in Australia? What if we lay on more renewables, more solar, more wind than we really need? You might say, well, why do we, why would we want to do that? Saying, well, we uh, want to ship Hudge not to Japan, generated from solar power. So you're going to need more renewables than you domestically need mm-hmm. if you wanted to be a next uh, a net exporter. Now, the nice thing about oversupplying renewables is Australia is a very big place, and so you have different time zones. And so it might be nighttime in one end of Australia and still daytime in another end. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you've got a network of renewables around Australia and you've oversupplied renewables because you want to make hydrogen, guess what? You've
0: also reduced the country's need for storage. So basically what we need more than anything then is interconnectors. Yes. So that energy exactly. from Perth can power across to Sydney yes. late afternoon. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Now Perth is uh,
2: unfortunately not part of Australia's no, no, alternate uh, na- universe <laughs> national energy market. Mm. It's in its own alternate universe. But this is modelling we will do. We will look at models. We'll
0: uh, pretend they're part of the federation,
2: not including Perth, <laughs> and models including Perth, and we'll look at the economics of uh, whether having a power line between Perth and South Australia makes sense or not. Um, I suspect it might make sense down the track, but um, we're kind of leaving it out of our models for the time being. And what we're looking at is um, is this idea of oversupplying uh, Australia with renewables, because once you do that, you reduce, lessen your need for storage and at the same time increase your capability to export fuel, say, to Japan and other countries and become a net exporter of power, um, and so you're killing two birds with one stone. You're getting a double hit there. So that's where the e- the, the power of this economics comes in. Mm. You know, can you see? And so we're looking at okay. So what if we double the amount of renewables we need? Triple? Quadruple? Go up to a factor of five even? And so we're looking at all these different scenarios. And so we're looking at say if we have a factor of five how much extra hydrogen will be, we be able to produce to ship off to Japan and uh, how much money could we potentially re- get in return for that and um, what would be the payback period for all that infrastructure you put into place. Uh, we're, so we're currently looking at these things right now. So I can't actually give you all those no, figures right what, now. because that's, what's that's what's what we worked that's on. That's what we're studying. And what we're looking at is is the consequent reduction in, in uh, storage. And it, it looks like the amount of storage that you would need in that sort of scenario is a lot less uh, than you th- one would, might think. Uh, the, probably the, we, are, we are looking at the total amount of storage uh, Australia might need down the track if it was to supply five times the amount of renewables it actually domestically needs, uh, would be something equivalent to building two Gordon dams. So big uh, but not horrific. Big but not horrific. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you might not do it with all with dams. You might build some smaller dams and then have some hydrogen that you keep behind that you don't export to Japan mm. and fill in the gaps that way. So... What this is showing is showing us is hey this stuff is doable, uh, it and with does, the technology we have now, it does fit together.
1: Yeah. Can Can I ask what water is? It is it water as a source for your hydrogen? I assume. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. So yes. It, does it does it have to be like very clean water? We are we taking from our drinking water supply to to make this?
2: Uh, yes. So. Uh, that's an interesting question. So, uh, yes, uh, to efficiently electrolyze water, you would like to use clean water. Because I remember in
0: the the article, I seem to remember you writing, "Let's go with desalination, make the clean water using the solar energy, mm, and yeah. then make the hydrogen, and that way, that just becomes a, a you know a circle we keep going closest yes. solar to desalination to water to hydrogen. Mm,
2: yes, and and you could keep the circle going because once you've you've done it once. And you've created the uh, clean water to then electrolyze and then you use it, burn that hydrogen uh, and use it, that turns back to water. Mm. So what if we can collect the water that we generate, the clean water, Mm. and put it back into the system and use that clean water again?
0: Mm. So beside Mm. the hydrogen storage is the water collection.
2: So there's a whole, could be a whole water collection infrastructure. And so...
1: Um, you bottle it up and it uh, pays for itself. Yes. The price is a uh, bottle of bottled water. So, so
2: <laughs> I, I think, I think uh, that creates a whole new economic structure mm. and it kind of solves the water problem as well yeah. because yeah. you're using water in a cycle there.
0: And you're saying from day one we're going to work towards that yeah. it just doesn't disappear in the atmosphere. Yeah. Right. that in the big heavy vehicle that stores hydrogen, we're going to keep its weight constant because it's going to recapture its own water and yeah. when it refuels on hydrogen next time, it's going to unload its water. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So my,
2: my, my vision is uh, in the same way we have filling stations to fill up with petrol or hydrogen, um, we should have, in those filling stations, means of trucks and cars being able to dump the water mm. that they've generated so that water is collected and f- and, and wow. uh, shipped back.
0: And water is a simpler thing and we have infrastructure. So the point is, you know, we know how to move water in an old-fashioned way. It's safe. You can put it in a pipe and it will go along. You can pump it occasionally to get it where you want. Yeah. So we have lots of potential to move water around with technology we already have.
2: Mm. There is a caveat in that pumping water is pretty energy intensive. Yeah, but you're talking about a
0: world where we're making lots of energy. Yeah, yeah.
2: that's true, that's true. So we're in a world where we can have an excess amount of renewable energy, more than we need, so that can actually uh, provide the energy that make up for any losses in the system, Mm. energy losses. So one has to... One has to think in those terms and see that it is a doable exercise.
0: And people have to be shown the integratedness of all of this. Yes. It's not ever just one thing. It's what five or six things it will connect to. Now, I've got one final question which you can either choose to answer or we'll just leave it out. Is it possible to have a hydrogen plane? Yes, it is
2: possible. It actually was done in the 1980s by the Russians. They had an aircraft called the Tupolov. And um, it ran on hydrogen. No
1: kidding. So uh, through the
2: turbines. But there was actually
0: hydrogen combustion. Yes, yeah, so in, through the turbines. Yeah. So really, it becomes and, the alternate fuel for the turbines. And as wow. I said,
2: the space shuttle was hydrogen. So yeah. obviously, yeah. you can have yeah. a hydrogen yeah, plane. Yeah, yeah but
0: again, that. Well, I thought you meant the boosters. So that is yeah, just that. That's gratuitous amounts of thrust. But I wanted: could we get to the point where sixth generation fighters, where the next generation of Airbuses are all running on hydrogen and just water is sprinkled down? No
1: kidding. Yeah. Uh,
0: yep. You can do that. Oh, uh, that is such a cool place to nearly yeah. end. And, and what is the hottest <laughs> performance vehicle running on hydrogen? <laughs>
2: Uh, is there one yet? That's a good question. Uh, there probably is, but I I haven't
1: followed up that. Okay, uh, we'll leave that to Tim as yeah. the is the car guy. Yes. In the building. I'll find <laughs> I'll find out. But uh, can this is I and I mean we've already proved the efficiency in so many ways. But I I, I kind of want to get into the like an an engineering question that's been on my mind the whole conversation. I don't know the term exactly, but I know that um, when you put fuel into a combustion engine um 22 percent of of the energy that you you make is is the kinetic force that you actually want and then the other 78 percent or i don't know exactly the percentages is you know um, we, heat call energy that, we
2: call that the conversion efficiency conversion yeah. efficiency so yeah, what's
1: yeah. the conversion efficiency of of a fuel cell for instance
2: okay um that's that's a good question, and um, yes, you will be uh, losing uh, quite a bit of your power. Um, uh, I can't remember all the figures off the top of my head, but I did, I did do a crazy calculation in in my paper ten years ago, to, just to give you an idea that all this is doable. Uh, so I'm going to answer your question in a different way. Sure. What I did is I is I um, made conservative estimates for all the inefficiencies one would uh, encounter when producing hydrogen and then utilising the hydrogen. And I calculated what area of solar panels I would need to actually produce an amount of hydrogen that would actually run the whole world. Oh, yeah,
0: I remember okay. this. I remember giggling hysterically.
2: So, so 15 terawatts is what you need to run the whole Whoa. world, right? Um, <laughs> and guess what the area was? It, it wasn't a stupid area. It no. was only the area of the whole of the state of Victoria.
0: Yeah. When you spread it across <laughs> the world, you just start laughing going, we could fix most of our problems, yes. economic and environmental, and energy for life and industry with one now integrated solution.
2: And that and that and that uh, area calculation I did was with uh, relatively inefficient twenty ten solar cells. W- was was with uh, conservative figures. Uh, the other the other thing I calculated is what a land area would need just to look after Australia only, uh, uh, hypothetically, if we did everything with hydrogen, just 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 to uh, as a way of feeling what the inefficiencies are like, mm-hmm. and. Um, it turned out to be the, um, the whole of Australian Capital Territory. Wow. Would anyone miss it?
0: No. Oh, I'd miss some of the restaurants and <laughs> no. breweries, but generally speaking, no.
1: Wow, amazing. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, uh, Derek, is there a question that uh, you wish we would have asked you? Yes, actually, I, I've got something
2: that's come to mind. Uh, this is a wonderful little story to just show you how the world is changing Uh, towards renewables. I was talking to uh, BHP some time ago about the Olympic Dam uh, that has traditionally been a a, a uranium mine and a a cash cow for them. And they were talking to me rather ruefully, saying that, um, you know, it barely breaks even anymore economically. And so I said, well, why is that? And they said, well, you know, um, the price of uh, uranium oxide has dropped by a factor of 10 over the last decade. And because the, the, the market is flooded and, you know, we can't keep up with countries like Kazakhstan that can cheaply produce it. You know, and we have various protocols, like when we tried to sign a deal with India to, to sell them uh, uranium, and... Uh, That deal fell through, and it was basically because India refused to abide by all the Australian rules for a proper paper trail and keeping the uranium accountable to make sure it's not being used for weapons and all that sort of stuff. They refused that, so that deal fell through. And, you know, we just, and Kazakhstan can just come along and... uh, would
0: you like some uranium? Or would would <laughs> hand you in brown paper bag. <laughs>
2: yes, that sort of thing. Uh, they, they don't necessarily have to abide by the rules. Uh, and um, so, you know, we're basically not making any money. <laughs> and so I said, well, so why are you keeping this mine open then? And they said, well, it's actually really a copper mine and... Uranium is actually a sideline of the copper mine. And so we are keeping the mine open simply as an we see it as an investment into the future for its copper. And they said, basically, uh, we see a copper as booming in the near future simply because of all the electrification that is going on. Mm. It's d- driven by this whole renewables boom. Um, and is helping and is helping to be one of the drivers. And so I think this is a marvelous story because here you have the mining lobby, <laughs> one of our uh, biggest players in the mining lobby here in Australia, essentially saying that their nuclear power cash cow mm. or used to be, is now that mine is now going to become a
0: renewables cash cow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, renewable and electrification cash cow. And renewable Which is the future for as far as we can yeah. imagine at the moment.
2: So if the
0: mining lobby is seeing that shift... We're already there. You know you're already there. Yeah. Awesome. Because that was a lot of stuff. Yeah. It's all very cool. Listeners, I'm going to listen to this at least twice to learn all the new bits since Derek wrote the article. So I do suggest if it all got overwhelming, just... Stop and re-listen later. Because yeah, there's so much to learn here. Mm.
1: Well, thank you very much, Professor Derek Abbott. It's been lovely having you here. It's been a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. And thank you, David. Thank you, gentlemen, and thank
0: you, listeners. Hello listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Auscast Network. Peace out.